2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawlessness one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. This is God's word. The second reading is Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and charged at him in a great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, 
The host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Medea and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in everything he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure... He will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. This is God's word. Good evening. If we've not met, my name is Richard, a member of staff here. It's fantastic to have you here this evening. These are strange chapters, as we've been saying through Daniel, strange chapters, but good for us. God has spoken. So should we pray as we look at this together? Father, we praise you that you have spoken and that age to age your word has stood. That this word which was true in Daniel's time, two and a half millennia ago, has been true through the rise and fall of nations and kingdoms and powers and people and stands firm still today. In the two and a half millennia that this word has been in the world has been spoken. 
It's never once been disproved. It's never once been successfully challenged. Because it is your word. This is your truth. So Father, please speak to us through these same words, old as they are, speak by your spirit to us today that we would grow in Christ. Amen. Well, what is God doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? If you've been here uh, in Daniel for the last uh, seven weeks, this is our eighth week in the book of Daniel, chapters one to seven, you can't miss the claim if you've been here. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. That is the, the claim of Daniel 1 to 7 over and over again. The Most High is sovereign. The God of Israel isn't just the God of Israel, it claims. He is the God of the world, the God of the nations. He rules over them. He chooses who's in charge. He chooses when they'll end. He chooses who's next. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. But then we all have times, don't we, and maybe right now, is this time for, for some of us? I'm sure it is. Well, we ask, how can that be true? Whatever it is, you look at the news of the world, you look at the last seven days of your life, and you say, how can that be true, that the Most High is sovereign, that God is reigning, and this is happening? Or at best, if it is true that God is reigning, then what is he doing? What is God doing in the world? And that is the question of Daniel chapters 8 to 12. In Daniel 8 to 12, we get a change in the book. We've said up till now the book's been in Aramaic, uh, the language of the world of the time, the world language, the message that God rules over all of the nations. But for these last few chapters, the language switches to Hebrew, to the language of God's people. And God is going to speak to his people. Forget the nations for now. He's going to speak to his people and talk about their future in about the 6th to 2nd centuries BC, just his people's future. And it will be rough. As you read these last few chapters of Daniel, the future will be rough. There will be times where God's people will ask, what is God doing in the world? What's he doing with us? We are being kicked around by the nations that God supposedly rules after, rules over. What is God doing? And so these chapters, Daniel 8 to 12, and starting tonight looking at Daniel 8, they will help us, as they helped God's people in those centuries, to hold together these two truths, that God is sovereign over everything that happens in the world, and yet the world is like it is. Daniel 8, in these next few weeks, will help us hold those things together, that we can confidently say that the Most High is sovereign, even over this world, even over this week. So let's jump in and look at Daniel 8. I'm sure as you heard it was read. This week, much like last week, the chapter comes in two halves. There's a vision and then there's an interpretation. Slightly different than last week. I like this, I read during the week. If chapter 7 is an impressionist painting, that is all sorts of people come to it and come away with all sorts of different interpretations of what it means. Daniel 8 is much more a political cartoon. It is caricatured, a strange imagery, but it tells you exactly what's going on, exactly who's in the frame, as we'll see in the interpretation. So verses 1 to 14 are vision, annoyingly over the page in our Bibles. Uh, 20 to 27 is the interpretation, so we'll have to flick backwards and forwards a few times so we look at the vision with the interpretation. But actually, we're going to start just in the middle. So if you flick over to verse 15, we're going to look at this middle section where an angel comes to tell Daniel what's going on. 
And in verses 15 to 19, we see that this is a vision of the time of the end. That's the phrase that comes up. It is the time of the end. That is, God promises that though this will be rough for God's people, there will be an end to it all. Let me just read that, verses 15 to 19. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Eli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I felt terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. Because this vision concerns the appointed time of the end. This is a vision of the time of the end. It's worth saying straight away, it's obvious as you read the chapter, that doesn't mean the final end of history when Jesus returns. Because as you read this chapter, it's obvious the events it's talking about here happen in the 6th to 2nd centuries BC. They happen even before the first coming of Christ. So this isn't the final end. But this is the end of a time of awful persecution, of awful suffering for God's people. So as Daniel 8 relates what will be a terrible time, the encouragement, the comfort is that this is a vision of the time of the end, when that will finish, when God will come, when he will rescue his people. God promises that though it will be awful, there will be an end. But God doesn't tell his people exactly when the end will be. In fact, verse 26, you see, he tells Daniel to seal up the vision. That is, if you like, just to keep it in your back pocket. This isn't given to you to write out a timetable of the future so you can tell exactly what's going to happen and what's going to happen and what's going to happen and when it'll all be. This is to be a comfort when the fire comes. You seal up this vision, a phrase you get a few times through Daniel. You seal it up, you keep it in your pocket so it's ready. When the suffering comes... That's when we really need Daniel. That's when we need to know what Daniel says, to pull it out again. To see this isn't a surprise. This is what God said would happen. It's not all gone wrong. And to see the comfort again that God promises there'll be an end. This is written to prepare God's people to suffer. And so in that sense, we are in the same situation. Jesus expected, Jesus promised that his church would be persecuted through history. He promised there'd be an end. And he didn't say when it would be. So in that sense, we're in the same situation as Daniel. Like he, we need this in our back pocket, if you like. Ready so that when suffering comes, when there's pain, when life is rough, we have this. We're ready with Daniel 8 as a comfort from the Lord. This is a vision of the end, a promise that an end will come. And the vision itself, it comes in two halves. In the vision, first you zoom out and you see hundreds of years of history play out in front of you in a few verses, and then you zoom in in the second half to look at one man and just a few years of his reign. So look at those two halves in turn. The first, verses 1 to 8, 250 years of history sweep by in front of us. And in those verses, the big thing we'll see is that these great kingdoms are temporary. The great kingdoms are temporary. Verses 1 and 2 give us the setting. It's the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. That is in the book of Daniel between the stories of chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's about 550 BC. And we are, verse 2, in the citadel of Susa. That's what Daniel sees in his vision. He sees the city of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire. And this is 550 BC. This is just about the time where Persia is rising up into power. They're the new kids on the block. They're the one to watch. 
And so we're watching just as the beginning of the Persian Empire comes up. And in fact, that's exactly what the vision is about, which starts in verse 3. Let's read from verse 3. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And just flick over the page at verse 20. Helpfully tells us, verse 20, the two-horned ram that you see represents the kings of Media and Persia. So that's what's going on here. You've got this ram, two horns represents two kings. And exactly like verse 3 says, the horn that was longer grew up later. Persia, they were later on the scene, but they ended up being the dominant partner in the the sort of joint empire of Medo-Persia. So this ram, two horns, two kings, it's Medo-Persia. And then we jump forward a few hundred years in history to verse 5 where Daniel says, sorry, it is going to be back and forth across the page, sorry about that. Verse 5, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I'd seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. And again, over the page, verse 21. Verse 21, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. So here we have Alexander the Great. I don't know how he feels about being a shaggy goat, uh, but it is a relatively strong animal if you've seen a goat in action. Alexander the Great, the first great king of Greece, who conquered the world in just a few years. All the territory of Medo-Persia, he took it over, he dominated it incredibly quickly. Verse 5 says he doesn't touch the ground. It was almost true of his armies. It's like they were flying across the world. And then at just the age of 33, he dies. Some historians think just of exhaustion from having masterminded this incredible campaign. He just dies of exhaustion at 33 years old. And so then you get verse 8. The goat became very great, but the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. And again, over the page, verse 22. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation that will not have the same power. It's the last bit of the history lesson. Uh, but that is exactly what happened. After he died, there's squabbling for a while, about 20 years, who's going to take over, who's going to take over, no one emerges. Until four of his relatively prominent generals, they cut up the country into four, they take it over, and so you've got the four kingdoms, the four mini-empires of verse 8, verse 22. So it's a couple of hundred years of world history. Medo-Persia up and then smashed by Greece. And Greece, Alexander the Great, rises, and then the whole empire crumbles, falls into four parts, led by four generals. That you could get from any history textbook. It's worth saying while we're here. It's encouraging, I think, that God has it written all down in Daniel 230 years before it happens. There he is, uh, predicting the sweep of history. He knows. Which is an encouragement still that the same is true today. We don't know where our economy will be in 23 years, let alone 230. What will happen in the Middle East? Who will be dominant on the world political scene? But the Lord knows. We can guess. But the Lord knows. 230 years, of course, he knows. But the point we're particularly meant to see here is the repetition that the great kingdoms, they're temporary. At the height of their power, they fall. Didn't notice it? Both in verse 4 and in verse 7, you get these same phrases that no one can stand against them. No one can rescue from their power. They become great. 
So they look like an unstoppable, eternal kingdom. No one can rescue from them. No one can stop them. They become great. Except then Medo-Persia is replaced by Greece, and then Greece breaks into these four empires. The great kingdoms, at the height of their power, they all fall and they collapse. The great kingdoms are temporary. I think that's why in this chapter they are farmyard animals. If you were here last week, chapter 7, the nations are represented by these terrifying beasts, these sort of hybrid things that you wouldn't want to see in a zoo, certainly not meet in public. These terrifying beasts, which is what the nations look like from our perspective, these great kingdoms and their power. But Daniel 8 wants us to know from God's perspective they're just farmyard animals, just a ram and a goat, to be shepherded off world history when their time's done. God whistles, he sends his border colleagues, and off they move, and the next empire moves on. The great nations, they are temporary. I discovered this this week, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, Genghis Khan, again, many will have heard of, 13th century Mongol conqueror. He'd have had a great time with Alexander the Great. Similar personalities, they liked killing people and conquering land. He once asked his philosophers, apparently, he sent them all away, come up with a truth that is unchangeably true. Go and find a statement that is always true in every situation. They went away, they had a think, they got their brains together, they came back. And they came back to Genghis Khan with this. It too shall pass. So they came back, I don't know what he made of that. Is it whatever you're talking about, the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the kingdom of Genghis Khan, the kingdoms today, it too shall pass. That truth is unchangeably true. In every situation of world history, in every situation of our lives, the great kingdoms are temporary. It too shall pass. That's the first thing we see in Daniel chapter 8. The second is that the days of persecution are numbered. So here's where we get to the bit that is bad for God's people, where God's people really go through the ringer. And God promises the encouragement is that the days are numbered, that they will end, that the Lord will end them. So again, let's look down verse 9. Verse 9, out of one of them, out of one of these four Greek kingdoms, came another horn, which started small but grew in power towards the south and the east and towards the beautiful land, that is Israel, where God's people lived. Verses 23 and 24 tell us this is another king coming out of one of the Greek mini-empires who is stern-faced and a master of riddles. So I guess a kind of cross between Jeremy Paxman and uh, Sherlock Holmes, something like that. Uh, This king who comes up and... Unlike Alexander the Great, unlike Medo-Persia, he is going to come after God's people. He's going to come after God's people. He's going to come after God himself. He's going to come after God's worship. He's going to come after God's truth. This is where stuff gets bad for God's people. Let's just look at those four quickly in turn. Yeah, let's look at these four in turn. At verse 10, he's coming after God's people. It grew, this horn, this king grew until it reached the host of the heavens and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It's poetic language. These stars are often an image that Daniel uses of God's people, of believers. And so this king, he will come after God's people. And he will particularly attack them. These other kingdoms, nations, they've ignored God's people, they've left them alone. But now we're coming after God's people. Historians, commentators would all agree this is talking about 
a king called Antiochus in the second century BC, a Greek king, Antiochus. I've never heard of him. I guess most of us haven't. I think we can call him Antony, and that'll just be a lot simpler. So Antony, great king in the second century BC. And this was him. He was massively anti-Semitic. So in his time, circumcision was outlawed. Any baby who was circumcised would be killed and then hung up publicly. Just to make the point, you don't do this. So here is a king who's coming after God's people. Secondly, he's a king who's coming after God himself. So verse 11, it set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host, or the prince of princes, as it's called later in verse 25. He's setting himself up to be as good as God. And again, we know that Antony had coins printed throughout his empire. I think we've got a picture uh, of the coins that Antony had. Yeah, there it is. And stamped on those coins, every coin through the empire, God manifest. In fact, he even changed his name to Manifest. The God of Israel, forget him. Pathetic. I am the manifestation of God. I'm the one you fear. I'm the one that you worship. He's coming after God. Thirdly, he's coming after God's worship. So again, verse 11, it took away the daily sacrifice from God and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. He stopped all sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, just to rub in the point, this might be the thing that upset the Jews most. He built a statue of Zeus in the temple, and then he brought in pigs and sacrificed them on the altar to Zeus. Now you can imagine how an Orthodox Jew reacts to that. He is coming after God's worship. So you cannot worship your God, you will worship mine. And you'll worship me. And fourthly, he tries to destroy God's truth. So verse 12, it prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. And again, this is true in history. He gathered every copy he could of the Torah, the Jewish scriptures, and burned them. The truth about who God is, what he's done in history, how he relates to his people, it's thrown to the ground and it's burned. As I say, all of this, historians look at the details, details in chapter 11 of the same uh, events, and say, this Antiochus, Antony, it's him. It's him. It was obvious, even at the time, so a first century historian Jewish historian could write, and indeed so it came to pass that our nation suffered these things under Antiochus Epiphanes according to Daniel's vision and what he wrote many years before they came to pass. It's talking about him. And yet, there is a bit more than that going on. This is why we read 2 Thessalonians earlier, because in that chapter in the New Testament, Paul picks up this Daniel 8 language, and he applies it to someone that he calls the man of lawlessness. And in the future, he says, this man of lawlessness will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, before finally he's revealed by Jesus and overthrown by Jesus. Now, we don't have time to get into exactly what is Paul. Is he imagining a particular bloke who somehow will end up having influence over the whole world? Is he saying there'll be a series of guys like this through history? but he's deliberately picking up the language of Daniel 8 and saying, you'll see Antiochus again, Antony again. You'll see his spirit alive and well in the world. Don't be surprised when you see people opposing God's people, God himself, God's worship, God's truth. Antiochus' spirit is alive and well. So just take one example, probably the example that's most obvious for us here in London. Truth will be thrown to the ground. Truth was thrown to the ground. 
So this will be the society where you're just not allowed to stand by Jesus' words, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. You just can't stand up in public and say that. It's, it's frowned on, it's hateful, it might be illegal to stand up and say that Jesus is the only way that we can know what God is like. It's a society where there isn't an objective truth anyway. We're thrilled you found something that's true for you, that works for you. But don't you dare suggest it might be true for anyone else. Truth is thrown to the ground. Let's take it another angle. This is the society where publicly holding to the Bible's teaching about how we're made to live, that lands you in trouble. As a, as a church in the past year, we've prayed for Christians in this country who have lost jobs because they've refused to let go of a biblical morality in their workplace. And it seems, I don't know the future, but it seems like over the next few years, decades, as a culture moves further and further from the Bible's teaching, it gets harder and harder to live in this country, particularly to work in the public sector, if you're going to say that what the Bible says is true, and in regards to how it's best to live, that what the Bible says is true. And so in a society where truth is thrown to the ground, where God's truth is thrown down, Paul would say in 2 Thessalonians, well, don't be surprised. The spirit of Antiochus is alive and well, it will be, until Jesus returns. And so from Daniel 8, how, what does God do for Daniel to help prepare him for that kind of time, to help prepare us for that kind of time? Well, I think two things. Two things. Daniel 8 tells us that God knows. And then Daniel 8 tells us that God numbers. God knows and God numbers. So first, Daniel 8 shows us that God knows. He knows what his people are going through. He sees it, he hears it, he knows it. Because he knows it ahead of time. Because it's striking the way this chapter is arranged. You've got Alexander the Great, who, if you read a history of the time, he would get chapters and chapters. You'd get his military genius, his prowess, his conquest, the stamp that he's left on European history. You'd get chapters and chapters on Alexander. I guess most of us know something about Alexander the Great. Whereas Antiochus, he maybe gets a footnote on page 371 if he's lucky. In the course of world history, Antiochus, he is a nobody. But you look at this chapter, Alexander the Great, his empire from its height to its fall gets 18 words in our English translation. Of course God knows it's going to happen in advance, of course he tells about it, but there's a sense in which he doesn't really care that much about Alexander the Great. The focus in this chapter, the focus in God's mind is it's on Antiochus because that's when God's people are hurt. That's what God cares about, that's what God sees. For those of us who are tempted to wonder whether God is too busy dealing with you know, the important things of history, he's making sure that prime ministers and presidents and kings do what they're meant to do. He's too busy to notice the details, to notice his people suffering. Daniel says, no, God knows. In fact, that's what God sees, that's what God cares about. In the sweep of history of Alexander the Great, who really cares? But when God's people are hurt, that's when God really pays attention. God knows what his people are going through. 
So God knows. And secondly, God numbers, which is the point of verses 13 and 14. God numbers the days of persecution. Let me read again, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and the host will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, It'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be restored. Exactly what are these 2,300 days? Uh, slightly tricky to work out. It doesn't help that at the time there weren't daily newspapers, so we can't exactly you know, work out what day different things happened. The period is just over six years. Some options of what it could be. Uh, it could be from the re- removal of the high priest in Jerusalem to when he was restored. That was just over six years. It could be from the end of the sacrifices to when the Greeks were finally kicked out. That was just over six years. But whatever precise period this does mean, See, the point is it's numbered in days. God is counting down the days until the persecution ends. You know what children are like, don't you? When they're waiting for something they're excited about, Christmas, a birthday, they count in sleeps. It's six sleeps to go till my birthday. They say, it's five sleeps to go till my birthday. It's four sleeps, it's three sleeps. And of course, God doesn't sleep. This is a, a slightly silly picture to use of the Lord, but I, I wonder if we're meant to see something like that. The first thing God does in the morning, he gets out his big red marker pen and he crosses off another day on his calendar until the, the day comes when he can end the persecution of his people. He crosses off 2,229 days until I can rescue my people. 2,228 until I can restore things. 2,227 until I stop the people who are hurting me. 2,226, 25, 24, 23. The days are numbered. And God won't let it go on one day longer than he's planned. The days are numbered. He won't be a day late in coming to the rescue of his people. Now, of course, for Daniel, he knew the number. He knew that it was 2,300. The Lord hasn't given us a number. We've been told that Jesus will return. We haven't been told when. But we know that the days are numbered. And so we can keep on going. Some will have heard the name Florence Chadwick, some won't have done. She was, by all accounts, an astonishing swimmer. First woman to swim both ways across the English Channel. Uh, and on the swim we're about to hear about, she set a record that beat by two hours, the best men's record of the time. But having swum the Channel both ways, she set her eyes on swimming from Catalina Island, which is just off the coast of California, to the California mainland, 26 miles through the freezing Pacific waters. And the first day she made the trip, the little support boats are with her just to make sure nothing goes wrong. She's swimming, she's swimming, and a fog comes down. And she can see nothing. And she's swimming, and she's swimming, and she's exhausted, and she's tired, and she's swimming. And eventually she says, I can't do it. Just pull me out. Pull me onto one of the boats. And ironic, just a few minutes later, the fog lifts, and she sees just a mile away, there was the coast that she was aiming for, just a mile away. Well, two months later, she's back in the water, she's swimming, she's swimming, the fog comes down. And she's swimming, and she's cold, and she's exhausted, and she's tired, and she's swimming. And she said in interviews later, she couldn't see the coast, the fog was just as bad as it was, but she'd seen it before. And so as she was swimming, she just had that mental image in her head the whole time of the coast that she'd seen. She knew it was there because she'd seen it. And she couldn't see it now, she didn't know how far away it was. But she could see it. In her mind, she could see it, and so she could keep going. 
She said in interviews that was the only thing that kept her going, that she'd seen that there was an end. And of course, there's a sense that that is the Christian life. There is an end. We don't know when it is. It's like swimming in fog. But Daniel 8 and chapters like it want us want to burn into our minds a, a vision, a mental image of the end, to know that that's coming, to know that we can keep going until it does come, that we can endure. Daniel 8 says that the kingdoms of the world are temporary and the days of persecution are numbered. The Lord has promised an end to it all. And so for the last couple of minutes, we'll just look at verse 27 and ask this question. Then how do you wait? How do you wait in the darkness, knowing what is going on around the world for God's people? For Daniel, what will happen in the future for God's people? How do you wait until the Lord ends it all? Because of course, I mean, it helps to know that God has promised that the kingdoms of the world are temporary that the days of persecution are numbered. It helps to know that in the past, God promised that, and to the letter, those things came true. Medo-Persia, exactly as God said. Greece, exactly as what God said. Antiochus, exactly as God said. But I imagine there comes a point where that just isn't enough. In the past, God's proved himself, but now, when there is so much fault, how do I keep going? How do I wait in, in my darkness? And while knowing those things will help, I think it is only knowing that what is true of Daniel in verse 27 is more true of the Lord Jesus Christ that will ultimately keep us going. We've said a number of times we've worked through the book of Daniel that Daniel is a model for us, but he's also a picture of the Lord Jesus. down Verse 27, I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Now, I know Daniel's issue was, it wasn't that he didn't understand what the vision meant. He knew who was Greece and who was Medo-Persia. He knew what was going on. But he didn't understand how God could allow it. He was appalled. He was laid out in bed for days because he couldn't handle the, the thought of what was going to happen to God's people. We can understand. He's just been showed hundreds of years of suffering in one vision. And it wipes him out. What's going to happen to God's people, to his people? Because in a sense, he shared in their suffering. Only in a sense, it's remote. He didn't taste any of it. Now this happened till he was dead and gone. Whereas the Lord Jesus has tasted and does taste, and does share our suffering. It's not that he's seen one vision of a few hundred years of suffering in one place. He knows all of it of his people, and doesn't know it from a distance, but is involved and shares. Of course, on the cross we've sung wonderful songs. He suffered, ultimately, the death we deserve, as he took our sin on himself. But then, He didn't finish there. He's still suffering with his people. In Acts 9, Saul is off to Damascus to round up the Christians and to have them killed. And he meets Jesus on the road and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul, I mean, apart from the fact he's blinded and he's astonished, he's not going to speak. But he could say, well, nothing against you. It's these Christians I'm killing. But no, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? 
As one preacher put it, when the foot on earth is stamped on, the head in heaven cries, why do you persecute me? Jesus has united himself to his church. He is the head of the the body, which is the church, in such a way that he feels the suffering. He shares in the suffering. He's with us in suffering. And from that position of being with us, there he says, it will end. In the meantime, he shares with us his spirit to keep going, to blazon that vision of the end into our minds that we can keep going. But he stands with us. He says, I've seen your pain. I've felt your pain. And it will end. Because I will end it. The days are numbered and I won't be a day late. This too will pass. Should we pray together? Our Father, it is astonishing to think that you know the huge scale and the small scale, everything that's happened and is happening and will happen through the course of history. There's no effort for you 230 years in advance to tell us all about someone like Alexander the Great, to tell us 500 years earlier of the suffering that your people will go through. And yet, Father, greater still to know that you are with us as we suffer, that the Lord Jesus has united himself to us, that he shares in the suffering of his body, the church, and that he will come back and end it, that we can wait in the darkness knowing that the darkness will end when Jesus comes back. Father, please help us in the meantime to wait for him, to know him with us, Amen.